We celebrate the resurrection and the birth of Christ year-round around these parts. 1 Samuel chapter 18, David's Nightmare Begins. That's the title of this evening's consideration. And with this chapter, uh, he will find that he has an enemy that won't let up. While Jonathan, King Saul's son, the crown prince Jonathan, that loyal and heroic figure, uh, he fell in love with David. When he heard him speak, he admired him as, as, as Saul is debriefing David about the killing of the giant. And, and Samuel, uh, Jonathan is there. He, he admires him. He befriends him. He falls in love with, with David almost instantly. Saul, on the other hand, because of his excessive self-love. We all have self-love. We have to have self-love. We wouldn't eat if you didn't have it. But in excess, it can really be a big problem. And we see this in characters, there are many, but such as Absalom, Nebuchadnezzar, and, and King Saul. Saul was, of course, uh, he led the opposition against David. Everything he had, he came to hate him. And this is the chapter we're going to find, find Saul beginning to hate David for daring, for daring to cast a shadow on Saul's greatness. It, um, it is important, of course, to get Bible knowledge. It is useful, but it has to be built on the ruins of the self, the old nature. And if that uh, does not begin to take place, if the old man, the old nature... The old lifestyle does not come under the sword. It's going to put the spirit under the sword. And this is what we get from a life such as Saul. He never put to death his flesh. He fed it. He refused the fundamentals of his own faith. And so now in this 18th chapter, we have the friends in Jonathan. We have an enemy in Saul. And we're not going to get to it this evening. We'll only get up to chapter 16. But... David marries, so we have a, a lover. Uh, these relationships that the Bible gives to us are for us to do something with, to learn and to avoid the pitfalls. David and Jonathan's friendship, Saul's jealousy and hatred of David, and then uh, Michelle, whom he marries. A new friend, a new enemy, and a new wife in one chapter, and all new problems, and you know, the short fight with the giant seemed to be such a, a wonderful victory. But now this long, drawn-out, dreadful thing which Saul is going to brew and overflow. Uh, a part of life in a fallen world to have to deal with uh, such uninvited problems. David did nothing to cause this. It's so important to remember that. He did not provoke this situation. In fact, he was punished for loving God and looking to obey the Lord. That's not the whole story, but that's a big part of it. And when Paul was traveling through the area of uh, Lystra and Derby and Iconium, he was stoned in Lystra. And, of course, he gets up and goes back into the city. He leaves, he continues evangelism, and he comes back again to, to go over, you know, the, the churches that he started. And he tells them this. He tells this evidently to all of the, the, the churches in that region. Uh, he's strengthening the souls of, 
the disciples, it says in Acts 14, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Well, David is, you know, the one that wrote, uh, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, not without tribulations of, in the kingdom for God. But by the end of his life, after many tribulations, David would be the giant among men and among kings. He's the one that is left standing. He is the one we remember as the hero from Bethlehem. He put Bethlehem on the map. Of course, all God's work, but this is the man God did choose and God did use in spite of his problems. And had his father, Jesse, not sent him as an errand boy, he never would have become the king, the hero. Such a wonderful lesson for those of us who have to start at the bottom and let God do what he's going to do. In verse 1, now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So there's the debriefing, and there it is. Jonathan falls in love with this man. He's hearing David speak. He sees the humility. He sees the righteousness. He's, he's watching his mannerism. He's saying, I just love this guy. Jonathan's likely a bit older than David. But go back for a moment to when David faced the giant there in the Valley of Elah. Imagine when the giant fell flat on his face. The Bible tells us Goliath fell on his face. Imagine the simultaneous gasp from the two camps, from the Philistines and the Israelite camp. Everybody at the same time must have been a raw. I don't think David heard it, but they, they heard it. Jonathan was part of that audience. And then they watched David take the sword and finalize the victory. But still, he didn't know who David was. He didn't know he was going to like him. He could, David could have come in and been the most arrogant, you know, puffed up, stupid person he ever met. He was not. He was everything that Jonathan held to be noble. And uh, the friendship is one of the greatest friendships in Scripture, in history. If I were going to do a sermon on friendship, this would probably be uh, the first stop amongst men. Amongst people, Jonathan, again, further amazed and endeared by the man when he heard him speak. He watched, he listened, he was impressed. As David told Saul how he just knew God was going to give him this victory. He knew that without God, there's no way he could, he could take out the giant. But with God, there was no way he could fail. And Jonathan would have heard such things, being a man of God himself. We know the same feeling when we come and we meet someone who loves the Lord, genuine, doesn't have a lot of baggage, uh, theological baggage, you know, weird beliefs. When they just love the Lord, love the word, we're attracted to that person and they to us. And so in genuine humility, the friendship is built. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The writer is saying this is the strongest language I can use to tell you. How much this man loved David. And he won't be the last one to love David. In a moment, we'll come to a few of them. Jonathan had an eye for greatness, and here it was. And we'll discuss in chapter 19 why it was that Jonathan 
with this eye for greatness, remain loyal to Saul, his father. Well, he almost had to do it. He really had no alternatives. Were not, they were not good. They were worse because of what it would do to the people, what it would do before God. He was sort of trapped in this family. Jonathan identified in David this like-mindedness that he had never come in contact with before. That's usually how it is. When, when you fall in love, you, you're not ready for it. You're not looking for it. it. It finds you. It pulls you in. This companionship built on the deepest like-mindedness that we can have among men. Accord, compatibility. You can find all sorts of words to, to express it. In 1 Samuel, in chapter 23, we read, Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. So that, that was never outside of Jonathan's makeup. He was totally a man of God. And he sees that in David. And after he died, David wrote, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, sur- surpassing the love of women. He's saying, it's just, we had this, this, again, this accord. We could finish each other's sentences. And it's a once-in-a-lifetime, for some, arrangement. Some things about friendship. Friends are to bring out the best in us. That's what makes the friendship work. They, bring, they don't bring out the worst in us. That won't kill the friendship. Also, and you younger ones could learn from this, a real stupid friend with a sword is worse than an enemy with a carrot. You just have a problem. Uh, you have to learn how to, you know, what. Don't, you can't force it. Being friends with a place like, or in a place like Sodom, costs a lot everything. Such an avoidable mistake. Why wouldn't he just listen to Abraham, his cousin, who had just was so successful and got it all right? That lot's success was based because of Abraham. And when he left Abraham, he eventually lost it all. Also, the writer brings this love between the two men, a high and noble love, uh, to the front because we're going to meet later in the chapter, next session, Michelle's love for David, which was a shallow love. It's not to be compared, really. It's a tragedy, that that entire uh, relationship. It was never what it could have been, though there were good things about it, and we'll get to that when we move on. Verse, verse 2 Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Well, he was so impressed with David, he says, you're conscripted. You are now drafted. You, are, you belong to the... Uh, this is what Samuel warned. If you get a king, he's going to take your sons from you. He's going to take the best of everything. But typical of Saul, so self-absorbed, a man that was just always ready to drain his surroundings... Just suck it dry and go on to the next waterhole and ruin that one too. That was, I don't want to be that kind of man in life that just takes nothing. Come The Dead Sea is like that. The Dead Sea takes in the fresh water and kills it. This shepherd boy will never be the same. It says again, Saul took him that day. But never did Saul take his heart and never did Saul take his life because of God. 
this rotten king devoted himself to a ghoulish cause to just persecute the man. That's all. Saul lived to do that. He was supposed to protect them, fight the Philistines. And you know what? Never mind the Philistines, our enemies today. Let them burn, loot, and pillage. Let's go kill David. And he was so messed up that nobody in the camp would say, Saul, what are you doing? Because Saul couldn't have a relationship like that. You could not question the man. He's so self-impressed. I, I mean, he, he gets me in the flesh. Like, what would I do if I met Saul? I'd try to beat him up. That's how much I don't like the guy. At least flatten his tires. <laughs> That's the flesh talking. The spiritual man would say, Saul, you're going to hell. <laughs> you better fix this. And we, you meet people like this in real life, but fortunately not maybe one, two in a lifetime. You don't meet many unless you're in a job where, you know, like <laughs> a detective or something. You've got to come across scoundrels like this, a criminal attorney or something. Verse 3, then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So the writer is emphasizing this, this bond between the two men. Jonathan is leading it because he's the crown prince. David's just a, a shepherd who is catapulted into fame for killing the Philistine hero. Now David is the Israelite hero. And so he initiates it. Being a member of the royal household, David really was. David, if David tried to initiate the friendship, so what are you doing, you know, mooching up to the prince? There would have been wrong. And yeah, here the... The hero and the prince become close friends. You know, in life, sometimes you get those close friends. And maybe not always is this high. I mean, I can think of some men from my past that I've lost touch with over the years, and I, I still kind of miss them. I wish I could find I'll never. I mean, I have one friend, Tony Jones. How would you look up a Tony Jones? <laughs> so I do a search on Tony Jones. Oh, look, there's only two hits. Yeah, so <clears throat> it, it takes a hero to know a hero. And remember, Jonathan has proven himself on the battlefield, and, and he, he recognizes these things about these qualities in David. An immediate camaraderie is born. This friendship will overcome oppositions, competing passions that, that otherwise, you know, blood's thicker than water. Dad's fam, Saul is family, David. Sorry, he ate your guts. I can't be your friend. But no, Jonathan found a way around that. Jonathan said, there's enough of me to be loyal to my dad and to love you even though he hates you. And he pulled it off. Saul would, of course, rather Jonathan hate David and join him in the execution of David, the public execution of David at that. And so this, uh, you know, this, this character, Jonathan, who would, uh, just a great, a great figure, verse 4, and Jonathan <clears throat> took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. <clears throat> David uh, just, you know, he, he didn't see this coming. But, John, you know, when you love somebody, a spirit that does not drain its environment but looks to generate blessings, that's Jonathan. He looks to give something. Saul is taking David from his family. Jonathan is arming David. Quite symbolic. You're going to need this against my dad. He doesn't know that. That's not what he is saying, but that's what we see in the story. The robe of Jonathan, Israel's crown prince. When David's older brothers see him with this, they, there's nothing they can say. 
David has got connections they will not have. His armor, the armor of the king's eldest son, the sword, the bow, among the best. Swords were rare. David went out and faced a giant. He didn't have a sword. They were so scarce. These are emblems of royalty and war, unfortunately, and honor. There's nothing romantic about war whatsoever. <clears throat> and when you watch a war movie, uh, you know it's just a movie. That, but it's a horrible affair. But yet, uh, that's, that's Paul's quote that I started in chapter 14. We have to enter the kingdom through these struggles. Saul did not deserve such a fine son. He did not deserve it. Why, why could he have been like David's older brother? No, he was Saul's son. Absalom did not deserve David for a father. Even though David, you know, just, you know, the whole palace life messed up a lot of things with him. Still, Absalom is not an excuse. Someone could have said, hey, Absalom, you should hear some of your, David, your dad's songs. I don't want to hear that stuff. And you're just not attracted to these spiritual things. So, uh, this all-out friend, Jonathan... You can see types in this. We can, make, we can run some parallels uh, by this story. Jonathan, the saved soul that recognizes the, the king who is coming, who will one day sit on the throne, and he gives him everything. Paul said it this way, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. We can see that's not his, I mean, he's not thinking that way, Jonathan. He's just, you know, taken by the friendship to finally a kindred spirit. He turned, and, and, but the, the, the parallels are there. The turning over of the controls, the weapons, you know, just here, everything I have, I want to give to you. And no longer in possession of his own armor, no longer captain of his own life. But submitted, which is the Christian life. And so you start out the Christian life in love with the Lord. You begin to learn. And then you start using what you've learned. And then the opposition intensifies. And it does it in different ways. Sometimes it's just a heavy attack, a series of attacks. Or sometimes it's just a slow, steady pressure put on the life. And every Christian is expected to come through these things by enduring and this is what, of course, the apostles in the New Testament con uh, wrote so much about. And they said discipleship is so important that you get around people who've been through these troubles in Christ and have come out, you know, shining. And you be around those kind of people. We'll get this next session, but I'll just say it now. In the Old Testament, families were the, the central figure of relationships. But by the time we come to the New Testament, that's no longer the case. In the New Testament... There's two other ships, discipleship and friendship. Paul and Philemon. Paul and Timothy, for example. Peter and Mark. Uh, just the discipleship and the friendships. Paul and Silas going from city to city preaching the gospel. Tychicus and, and, uh, and uh, just uh, the, the, Gaius with John. Just, this becomes the dominant uh, path for the believer to take. To this day, what is supposed to make a church effective and Christians more effective is just that. Discipleship and friendship. Uh, just uh, the, It can include the home for sure. 
But it is not limited to the home. Now, it's, it's everywhere. And this is what the, the Jews could not understand this with Paul. He's reaching out to Gentiles. He said, listen, I don't care what you eat. I care about what you think of Jesus Christ dying for you on a cross and rising again and coming again. That's what I care about. And so many people got in the way of that. Same in Christianity. You stand up and you say, what's dominant for a Christian is discipleship and friendship. And there are those that will try to eat it away. No, I it. No, that can't be right. Fortunately, you get old, you learn how to deal with them. You just say, shut up. And it's over. <laughs> well, anyway, their friendship, an example of this loyalty and, and uh, this mutual like for each other. Jonathan, so unlike his father in almost every way, uh, a giver, not a taker. That's what comes out of verse 4. Now verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he, accept, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. <laughs> so he says, here's your new captain. And nobody, he said, listen, before you say you don't like this guy, just remember what he did to that giant. <laughs> like, that, that went a long way. But smooth seas en route to the storm. How does a ship get to the storm? Through smooth seas. <laughs> and, and this is what's happening. He's uh, uh, the clouds are on the horizon. But here he is, excelling. He behaved wisely. Parallel again with the Lord Jesus, who increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Wouldn't we love to know how he did that? The details are just passed over until Christ enters his public ministry. We don't know how he did this. I want to know. I, I, when I'm going to be in the video library in heaven almost every day watching reruns of this. Okay, you're not interested. I'm more spiritual. That's why we all know it. Okay. <laughs> so here's David gaining the experience and climbing the ranks. He's not a youth out to prove himself smarter than his leaders. He's one that is learning and applying. Uh, you know, when, when I went into the steelworking business, they were dominated by Irish Catholics, and the ones that got immediate access were the Mohawk Indians from Canada and upstate New York. But everybody else, you had to prove yourself. Many of those guys did it in the bar. They'd buy drinks. They'd become drinking buddies. Well, of course, I did not drink alcohol, and uh, God told me at the early, earliest point as an apprentice, be like Joseph. Just do everything you're told, and uh, do it with joy. Don't push back, and I did that, and I won so many mentors. They taught me things that they otherwise would not have taught because those guys would hide moves from guys they didn't like. They didn't want them to learn. They wanted them to go <laughs> be dumb, but this was, you know, until, until I was in demand, companies would call my house. Hey, I got a job. I'm sorry, I'm working. So this is a tactic of uh, the righteous to learn to submit until you, God moves you up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. He'll put you in the right. This is true for man and woman alike, girl and boy alike. Become a sponge where you soak up the knowledge. Nobody wants to work with a know-it-all. 
And sometimes I'd get uh, apprentice come work with me or a, a new journeyman, and they'd have that know-it-all attitude. I'd go to the boss and get me another partner because I'm not getting anything done with this guy. He knows everything. And he says, idiot. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah, I'm too late. So, you know, you, you go and you, you win people, and this is David. David is going out, and he's just endearing himself. As I mentioned, we'll get to some verses, but he's greeted uh, as the man who slayed Goliath, and he didn't mess it up. There was, was no evidence that David ruined this opportunity. There's all the evidence is that he capitalized on it. Verse 6, now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. Well, they greeted as heroes coming back from from the battles. It was a gesture of gratitude and joy. uh, But but it's going to bring unintended sorrow to David. Uh, a good thing that is going to be ruined, not because of them. It was not well thought out. We'll get to that next verse. But because of one person. One person ruined the whole thing. Genesis 41, verse 40. You shall be over all my house, it was said by Pharaoh to Joseph, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. See, that's what Joseph did with his hardship. And he steps into, you know, he just he, he was just a godly guy. He was a little naive. You know, hey, brothers, by the way, I had a dream. I'm better than you in God's eyes. And, and of course, that just wasn't the way to do it. He, he learned. But he suffered. And yet, he, he is exalted. It did come to pass. Verse 7. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. <laughs> It is kind of insulting and unnecessary. They didn't have, I mean, imagine. Miriam left the example. You know, when you want to have a victory, she gave the example. You, you don't sing, Aaron, I mean, Moses lifted his rod, the sea parted, Aaron did nothing. I mean, you don't, you know, Harry killed more, you know. Aaron carried Moses' baggage or something silly. You just don't do that. But that, that was there. It wasn't well thought out. This is what happened on the day of the victory of the Jews, their first victory. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to Yahweh and spoke, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So that's the example. That's what Bible examples are for. The ladies should have looked at that and said, praise the Lord. Everybody's back safe. Uh, Miriam, Exodus 15, 21, and Miriam answered, in response to, the, to Moses. Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The lyrics came easy to her, because Moses already gave it. She has repeated it. But it's beautiful. She responds with this. She repeats it in the female tone. It's just, oh, I would love to be there. It would be one of the videos I'll be looking at in heaven. So, they departed from Miriam. And Miriam and Moses' example that God has done this. The song, of course, that they're singing is hyperbole. It's exaggeration, poetic hyperbole. 
It's to share light on just how great a victory David has been bringing to the people. There's nothing they haven't experienced in their lifetime. Or maybe since Samuel, they're very excited. But David had not yet slain thousands of people and never really did with his own hand. Samson, of course, did on a day. (laughs) He does all the day's work for Samson. Imagine if Samson took the head of Goliath and went into the tent with, with Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan would not have loved that guy. Jonathan says, listen, we had to post him in Siberia. Uh, just call him when we need him. <laughs> Pay for a cell phone if that's what it takes. Anyway, they did not intend to offend the king, uh, but they did. They were just rejoicing. The song became so popular on the charts that the Philistines knew the song. And they throw it up in David. Isn't this David who the women were singing? Saul has killed his thousand. David has killed his ten thousand. So, I mean, it's just been a far-reaching song. I wonder what tune. You know, the Bible has preserved the words of many songs, but we don't have the beat. So we have to make one up. And uh, it's, it's okay. It's unbiblical to use a ukulele to do it. But a ukulele is like an instrument that wants to be an instrument. Anyway. Okay, I know there might be some ukulele lovers here, and let's just move on. <laughs> some of us are old enough to remember what Tiny Tim did to the ukulele, <laughs> and it will just never be accepted. <laughs> then Saul, verse eight, was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands? Now what more can, can he have but the kingdom? And now it's on. There the hatred fires have been lit. A better man than you. That's it. He knows it. He knows it's true that David is better than him because David's godlier, more godly than him. And this, this is more than a burst of anger. It was deep, it was demonic, and it is deadly in this man. The Hebrew word, look back at verse 8, where he says, Saul was very angry. The Hebrew word for very is vehement. It's a vehement anger. This thing is off the rails. And, you know, imagine a train coming your way <laughs> off the rails. It's out of control. It's going to wreck everything. The, the, the first time these two words appear together is in Genesis 4. And you might recognize that's Cain, who was another, well, that's a whole nother, whole nother life, Cain. Anyway, Genesis 4, verses 5 and 8. But he did not respect Cain's offering. God says, no, I'm not taking this. This is not what I wanted, and you know it. And I'm, I'm not going to appease you. And Cain was very angry. He was vehement. He had the kind of thing where you go, you go and you throw things. And his countenance fell. The Bible's polite with some of its descriptions. Sometimes it's not. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Here's the outcome. And it came to pass, as they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And we're told in the New Testament, because Abel was righteous. And Cain hated him for that. Well, this is the case with Saul. This vehement anger. It's not cute. It's not acceptable. How dare David be better than Saul? How dare he cast a shadow on my throne? Proverbs 27, verse 4. Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent 
But who is able to stand before jealousy? I mean, it's one thing to have an anger issue. It's a whole other thing to be angry with jealousy. Possessiveness, where it is, in, where it is, it is inappropriate. God's jealousy is not selfish. God's jealousy is on behalf of his people. He's protective of them. Because when we think of jealousy, we always think of it in the negative, except when we become biblically literate. But a man who says, if I can't have you, no one can have you, that man is a monster. Or a woman or anybody who's, who thinks like that. Imagine, you know, you, 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 you get a, a car or something and you find out you can't keep it and you, you burn it up. If I can't have it, nobody's going to have it. Well, if you're spiting the repo man, that might be worth it. It would not. It would be a sin. Anyway, he, was, uh, he had a fit at being second fiddle is what's going on here. Uh, Saul is failing. David is succeeding. And Saul can't handle it. And it says here in verse 8, And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. That's all he heard. He blacked out after that. After he heard that, Saul remembered nothing more about whatever they were singing, wearing, or doing. All he could see was David. And this type of jealousy is, is born of being separated from God. The Spirit of God departed from him, and an evil spirit began to dominate his life. The rhythm was ruined. It was that wicked brand of pride. There is the pride that comes from satisfaction of a job well done. That's not an arrogant pride. That is not a, I'm better than you. That pride is the evil pride. One that puts me over everyone else. And uh, this, this brand of pride it took a cherub and made him the devil. It starts out early in life. We see it now. We see it in little children. We see anger and wrath in little kids, little toddlers. You know, with their tempers entering. It's cute, but it has to be dealt with. It's, uh, Spurgeon said it's easier to step on a serpent's egg than the serpent. And it's true. It's nip it in the bud, we might, we might say. He says, now what more can he have but the kingdom? Well, because of his unchecked self-love that harms, again, anything that dares to disagree with it, his soul pride, exalting himself above others. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Well, the kingdom is not yours. It was given to you, and you blew it, and you were served warnings about this repeatedly. But he felt entitled to the throne. And when you love yourself in excess, you feel entitled to everything. You might, you might say a person is a spoiled brat. You don't have to be a child to have that moniker tagged on to you. You can be, you know, 90 years old. I have never met a 90-year-old who's a spoiled brat. They just don't have the energy. <laughs> takes a lot of energy to be a spoiled brat. you got to fuss at everything. you got to make a list of things you don't like and make everybody know it. Well, Saul, of course, siding against God, did not realize he's siding against God's champion. Uh, but it wouldn't matter if he did. Verse 9, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. And there the drama music kicks in. The beginning of woes for David. i got my eye on him. And it's an evil eye. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. If you've ever been jealous of someone else, you know it's, it's not something, I, I hope, it's, it's something like, you know what, this is hurting me. <laughs> I don't like this. This is eating me up. 
I got to stop being this way. I've got to learn to let things go. Just I'll live without it. I'll suffer without it. That's better than being eaten from the inside by this gnawing rat of jealousy. And uh, it's it's not. I you know I don't think any Christian should try to make anybody feel jealous, provoke them to jealousy. It's it's not a virtue. David's reward for gallantry in the field of battle, for taking out the giant that no one else would take out, was that people applauded him, and now he's hated. Proverbs 17, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked. Listen to this. This is for those advocates of fools. He who justifies the wicked, and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. Abomination means you hate it. That action is hated. And we need to serve the world notice because they don't have a cause. So they invest themselves in man-made causes. And in so doing, they pass by the causes of God and they become advocates for sin. Even, even if it's a good thing. They could want to, you know, feed people and, uh, that are hurting and that's a good thing. But when it comes to the point of blocking the gospel also... It can be a very bad thing. Um, Paul experienced this. Um, he preached, and Elimus resisted the gospel, and Paul healed people there on the island. And uh, he had to strike Elimus blind for a while for interfering with the gospel. He called him out, didn't let it go unnoticed. Verse 10, and it happened on the next day, that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. Again with the distressing spirit, from the man who, now, who once walked with God, and now turns his, has turned his back on God, to the point of dark rebellion. It wasn't just, you know, I'm struggling with God, I'm upset. This is, he was against God. And he's not, you know, just, well, he's just drunk and he'll sober up. No, he's drunk or not. He's like this all the time. It says he prophesied in the house. Now, that means he did singing. Prophecy used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is broad meanings. You have to use the context to understand. David is here playing the harp. And he's either singing the blues or country western. Because that's what you sing when you're down. You don't... I don't know. Is there a jolly country tune? I'm sure there is. I'm working nine to five to figure out what it is. But all right. So David played music with his hand. Okay, we got to stop there. They're harping on this hand thing, as at other times. Oh, it's just so cute. Uh, the operative word for this evening, cute, right? Uh, he played. Why didn't? Why doesn't it say? And he played music with his harp. That would have done it for everyone. I know. I am harping on this. But there was a spear in Saul's hand. What a contrast. One is singing songs of joy or ministering to the other one. The other one has got a weapon, and he's going to try to kill the... Kill the I mean, David was really bad at playing the harp. And of course, he was not. Four times, four times we read about a spear in Saul's hand. Each time it's in relationship to David. What does that mean? Is it a symbol, an emblem of his cowardice, of his hatred and paranoia? Yeah, I think it is. We'll 
come across it in chapter... I'll give you the verses if you want to look it up. Later. First <laughs> uh, Samuel 19, 9, 22.6, and 26.11. And at 26.11, David steals the spear, but he gives it back. And Abishai wanted to give it back. <laughs> you know, this just... It's, it's on my heart to give him the spear through his heart. Verse 11, and Saul cast... Oh, let me pause here. Now, I know I'm extremely funny. Sympathy laughs are not encouraged. <laughs> it's hard, though. We feel so sorry for you. If you just stop telling jokes, we wouldn't have to do this. Verse 11, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice, twice. We got to talk about this, David. The, the spear in Saul's hand is not a coincidence. It's not, where are you going? I'm going to listen to some music. I'm, I'm bringing my spear with me. It's the wrong thing. You know, bring a tambourine or, you know, <laughs> anything. The little hand clickers, <laughs> castanets, whatever. Anything, but don't take a spear. If the musician is bad, you're the king. Just tell him to leave. Don't throw it at him. Well, uh, of course, it's not a coincidence. He's seething with hatred. He's taking the spear because he's like, he just, I want to kill that guy. Someone evidently overheard him say, right when he was about to throw the spear, is I'm going to pin him to the wall. It meant stick the spear through him till he sticks to the wall. Kill him. Now, David slew the giant Saul was afraid of. You think Saul would have said, you know, this guy might kill me back. But he's irrational. He's delusional. He is out of his mind. And he does it twice. And David could have killed him. And David goes back. Why does David give him another shot? No, David, I'm out of here. I don't care, king or not. Nobody's throwing a spear at me. I think it is because word got around. We know David was you know, brought into the palace to, to play music because Saul had this issue of depression and everybody's thinking they're going to help him. Some of them are pretending it's not there. Oh, come on. He wasn't really, you know. If he wanted to kill you, David, he would have killed you. No, he, was, he would have killed me if he could have killed me. David, I think, believed he could help the madness of Saul, and he was wrong. What a lesson. There are just some jobs that are too big for us. And uh, what the people, what are they thinking? Are they thinking, you know, that they're excusing Saul? How come somebody doesn't throw a net over this guy, drag him out and lock him in a loony bin somewhere? Because he's getting away with it. He's making people think that he's just, you know, I, I got this problem. I throw spears at people every now and then. But I come out of the blues. You look, I'm going to give him my daughter to marry. Oh, that proves you're saying. Anyway, uh, I have to say that there are some moody church growers who do this. They take a spear with them, and they hurl their critical insults at others without justification. May it not be us. Uh, whatever happened to Saul delighting in the smooth music? Verse Samuel 16, so David came to Saul and stood before him. We're going back now. And he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Yeah, because Saul was just soaking in the attention. And he, he didn't even know who David really was. He just, yeah, another servant. I love this guy. 
but it was all shallow. That's why when David goes out, he says to his general, Abner, who is this guy? Who's his father? Well, we told you that. I mean, Abner couldn't say, we told you that. How could you forget? Because they knew, they knew how Saul was, and so they all just kicked into survival mode. We will go along with Saul instead of dealing with him. And now he is fully homicidal, just as Samuel pointed out to God. If, if Saul finds out I go to anoint David, he's going to kill me. God says, look, you know, you're going to take a heifer with you anyway to do this. Just take it and do it like you always do it. Violently paranoid, that gaze, that scorn. And he, when he saw David, the sight of David, just he hated the sight of him. And that's what's happening here. David's playing away, singing. Saul's singing a little bit. And then he starts working himself into darkness. He's looking at David. And the evil is just coming on to him. And as I mentioned, there are many that are blind to it. And they're no help. And if somebody had stepped forward early on, wouldn't have this mess in David's life, but no one did. How did they behave later, years later? Many of them died on battlefields. Others just out of the picture. And we'll get to that in Chronicles. Anyway, verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with him, but had departed from Saul. And I think everybody knew this. That's why the historian is writing this centuries later. He's saying... God wasn't with this guy anymore. Everybody knew this. But they made excuses. Three times in this chapter alone, we're told that Saul was afraid of David. You know, the kind of fear when you're afraid of something, you want to kill it before, you know, I don't know what that is, kill it, kind of a thing. Uh, This is the fear. He knew what it was. In verses 12, 15, and 29, we will have it said that he was afraid of David. He was terrorized of the light. <clears throat> that God was going to bless this man and no longer him because God was not putting up with him. He felt God was, he was entitled and God was supposed to bless him nonetheless. And when he found out the Lord wasn't doing that, he moved under the protection of another. It says, because the Lord was with him. And that's what he resented. It says, but the Saul departed from Saul. You know, we pity somebody when they lose their sight, they lose a limb, if they lose loved ones, they lose a, their job, their house. What about when a person loses their God? I think we believers pity them. I think we know that's the main thing. Sometimes they're too dangerous to waste pity on. We're too busy scrambling to keep them from harming other loved ones. We're not feeding the tiger. And this, um, if someone had stopped feeding Saul, you know, you, you read this looking back at this, you see, boy, you know, in hindsight, if we just could have somehow gotten rid of this guy. But God was using Saul, nonetheless. I mean, Saul, he was using Saul to shape David. Um... You you can't complain. You you can't challenge that. You have to accept it. Verse 13. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So now he moves from being a company commander to a battalion commander. He has more men under his authority. Saul's motive is, is, I just need to get him out of my sight. The look of him sickens me. And so this is how he does it. It's bitter resentment. And made him captain over thousands. Uh, still no wife as a reward. 
you remember that the, the father was going to be tax exempt, Jesse, to the man that killed the giant, so the people said, and Saul would give Mirab his daughter. Well, David is still unmarried. Saul has not delivered. Why? Because he's that manipulative. We're going to get to that next session. Verse 14, David behaved wisely in all his ways, and Yahweh was with him. Of course, a parallel. Jesus increased, as said before, in wisdom and stature. Verse 15. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. As the second mention of this fear of righteousness. You, a rational person would say, God is with this guy. I'm going to be with this guy. An irrational person that is self-absorbed who knows how to sneak past people, make them like him. There are people that, that liked Saul because they couldn't see this. And they dismissed things. You know, Saul threw a spear at the, the harp player last night. And, of course, obviously, how bad was the music? How does it, bad does it have to be to get a king to throw a spear at you? But the reality is uh, they, they probably excused it away. He's just having a bad night. Uh, again, if he wanted to kill him, he would have. No, he wanted to kill him. He just couldn't. So while David is blameless, the people begin to see that God's blessings are on him, but they don't see enough yet. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says to Timothy about the church, the people in the church that Timothy's pastoring. He says, and these things command that they may be blameless. You know, a lot of Christians don't, you know, under grace. We're under commandments too. We, we're still under the Ten Commandments with the exception of the Sabbath. And, I mean, because it's never been just because Christ died for my sins, it doesn't mean I can go out and murder people or steal from people. Uh, we have commandments, and we are to try to be blameless, be, uh, you know, perfect, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. We are to... Pursue these uh, virtues of righteousness. David's popularity increased, and that further enraged Saul. How does that work, right? In a, in a kingdom that is supposed to be under Yahweh. Well, you look at some things that takes place in some churches, and you just scratch your head. There can't be a church. Who does that? Verse 16, But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out, and came in before them. And so there it is. We started off with Jonathan loving David. And now all Israel and Judah loved. That means, you know, Saul's people and all the other tribes, Asher and uh, Dan, all the others. They, the people from those places, they loved him because character counts. Because it ex exerts influence. So the preaching of the word is supposed to call out character on the, in, on the listeners from the word. And it's supposed to help us. It's, it, the word is supposed to influence us. And then we're supposed to influence others. Not directly, but just by being blameless. That is a powerful influence. It is so powerful that hell is completely devoted to getting us not to be blameless. To make us guilty. Uh, that's, how, that's how important it is. It is not a casual thing. What do I have to do to be loved? Okay, well, no, let's ask it this way. What do you have to do to really make people struggle to love you? Because good people are going to try to love you. And some can't help it. They're going to love you anyway. Uh, I would be more interested in knowing 
what the Lord wants so that I can be blameless, that I can influence others in a good way. Um, how do I influence others? You know, we, we say, what, what will people say of me when I die? If I die. Um, glad he's gone. Whew, thought he'd never die. I, I would, who would want that? Oh, the enemies, I mean, they're always going to have enemies of some sort. If you're doing anything, you're going to make enemies. But I mean of the decent folks. Well, in addition to Jonathan, Jonathan, sane people had no problem loving this man, which is something. You know, um, <clears throat> it is something, you know, what Jesus asked the disciples, what do, who do men say that I am? And it was much greater than when we ask, you know, what are people saying about us? As a pastor, I really don't ask. I don't want, don't tell me unless it's good. Uh, so sometimes, don't worry, the Lord, when he wants me to hear something bad, he gets it to me. It's like, oh, great. And i got to go work on that. Second uh, Samuel chapter 23. These are three of the mighty men that loved David. Mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. He said Jonathan wasn't the only one that loved him. This blameless, this influence that he had on others. This is years later. He's much older now. And yet these men, are, the king said, David said he wanted water from Bethlehem, his hometown. Let's go get it for him. Who does that? The men who love David. Of King Hiram, who's the king of Tyre. And he built up Tyre. He was a, he was a very successful king. Truly a king. <clears throat> First Kings 5. For Hiram had always loved David. I would like to be that guy. Now, again, there are going to be people that won't love you because you didn't, you know, come to the kindergarten graduation of their second niece's uncle or something or whatever. Uh, those you just, you know, you have to parry those. But, I mean, the, the, the people that, the good, decent folks, if, if they're having, if you're making it difficult to be loved, why? Second Samuel chapter 15, verse 21. This is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Itai. He's probably a Philistine. He was a Gittite from Gath. Could have been a Jew. Not sure. But this is when Absalom has come and David has fled Jerusalem. And as David is leaving and the people are passing before him, Itai and his troops, apparently Itai was part of the bodyguard for David and uh, the commander. And as he comes by, David says, this is your fight. You go, you know, this is probably why he was also a Philistine. You can go. This is, this is ours. And Itai says to David, but Itai answered the king and said, as Yahweh lives and as my Lord, the king lives, surely in whatever place my Lord, the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. I will be with you in this life no matter what's happening, and I'll be with you in heaven. That psalm, you know, goodness and mercy, follow me all the days, dwell in the house of the Lord forever, I'll be with you there. Absalom, your own son coming against you, looks like you might lose this one, I'll be with you. It is believed that Itai died in this battle. And it's believed because we don't read of him after this, we read of the other commanders, uh, the forces, David divided his forces in three, Itai received one, and we, we don't hear of him again. It is, you read that 2 Samuel 15, verse 21, and Atai's response to David, you're reminded of Ruth and her response to Naomi. Because, again, Ruth never met a woman like Naomi of such virtue. Atai, a man 
who was a man of honor, never met a man like David. Okay, I can't be as, as noble and high as many of these characters in the Scripture, but I'd be a lot better off trying than not trying. I'll be a lot better servant to God trying to be like the high and noble servants of Scripture rather than trying to ignore them. I mean, once a Daniel comes into your life, you read the story of Daniel and say, man, I, I couldn't be like Daniel, but I'm going to try to do what I can. What did Daniel do when he knew the death sentence was <clears throat> given to those when they outlawed his religion? He continued his religion. He just said, I don't care what they're doing. I know what I got to do. And he opens the doors in front of everybody and he prays. The nerve to serve God. David will prevail. He will come out of this nightmare. Saul will not. And David will not come out alone. He's going to bring a lot of people into a life and a kingdom. We talked about this early in his, his, his uh, life, that his influence on Israel, is, uh, if it had not happened, uh, would be a whole diff a different Old Testament than what we have. Well, we're finished a little early. That means we could probably run out and get something to eat before the children's ministry knows about it and all come back stuffed and they'll miss out. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, again, may we just review our standing as Christians in the light of your word. And may you get us all home safely. And if there is a storm coming, Lord, may you keep us safe, keep the electricity on, and uh, get us all home safely again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.